This morning's sermon comes from Revelation 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it was slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard all around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I vividly remember walking out of the doctor's office. This was a number of years ago. Both me and my wife, Kim, just holding back tears until we got in the car, at which point the floodgates opened. But we had been struggling for infer- with infertility for a number of years. And we were in the middle of a procedure that was really our, functionally, our last try of having a biological child. And we get to the end of that appointment with the doctor. And he looks at us and he says, I just need you to know <clears throat> that you have about a 10 to 15% chance of this procedure bringing a child. And we were, I mean, we were just devastated. Uh, despair, frustration, devastation, all just stacked on top of each other as we, we wept in the car. And they were, they were certainly tears of sadness. But they were also tears that came from the deep realization that we couldn't change that percentage. It was out of our control. There was nothing we could do to try to drum it up and change it to 90% or 95% or to give us some degree of hope. The question this morning is what what causes you to weep? And if you're not a crier, lest you check out for the rest of the sermon, I'll ask it this way. What causes you to reach a point of despair? And when you get to that place of despair, 
or frustration or tears? What do you look to to dry up the tears? Or what do you move to to try to bring some sort of hope in the midst of the despair? Those are the kind of questions that Revelation chapter 5 answers. Because right in the middle of this chapter, John, the writer of Revelation, is weeping loudly. You know what that means? It means he was weeping really loudly. Okay, this wasn't just some tears rolling down his cheeks. He's weeping loudly. So the question is, who is the only one who is worthy and capable of drying up your tears or bringing some, some degree of hope in the midst of your despair? Now, to answer this, we're going to look at the cause of tears, the one who dries up your tears, and then the result of that from weeping or from tears to victory. Let's start with the cause of the tears. So chapter five begins in verse one with this image of the scroll that God holds in his right hand. And it's described as a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, what exactly is this scroll? This scroll is God's plan and God's purpose for his world throughout the ages from beginning to end. The scroll is God's plan for the salvation of his people. This scroll is God's secret purpose in establishing the kingdom of God here on earth. Let me try to sum all that up by saying this. The scroll is God's plan for making things right. And if you're here this morning, if you're not a believer, maybe this is your first time in church, we can all agree on at least one thing. And that is that this world is not right. That this world is broken. And so the scroll represents, the sealed scroll, God's plan to make things right in the world that he created that has gone awry because of sin. Verse two, the angel proclaims, who's worthy to open the scroll? and break its seals. In other words, who can execute this plan? Who can accomplish this salvation? Who can bring it to fruition? Right? That's the question in verse two. Verse three, no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. That means any, no human being, no angel, no one was worthy to open the scroll. And this highlights something that is true of our world and has been true since the very beginning. While no one's able to open the scroll, we have tried to for centuries. Human beings, since the beginning of the world until now, have tried to attain salvation, have tried to save themselves, have tried to make things right in a world around them that's clearly broken. It's the story of the scriptures, self-salvation projects. In fact, we see it in the garden, the very beginning, our first parents, why did, why did they eat the fruit? Because they felt like something was missing and happiness was eluding them. And that if they ate the fruit, their eyes would be open. That was the temptation from the evil one. Their eyes would be open to a whole new world of happiness outside of God. So they ate. Move on to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, an amazing building project by humanity. They're gonna build this massive tower to the heavens. Why did they build the tower? says to make a name for themselves. 
They were a deeply insecure people. Does that connect at all? Deeply insecure. And they were going to fix their insecurity by what? Building this tower. Making a name for themselves. Or consider Moses, shortly after leading God's people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. God's people are complaining. They're grumbling. God's not providing for them. And they get to a place where they're thirsty. They have no water. And the Lord says to Moses, tap this rock and water will flow. And so Moses doesn't just tap it. He beats it twice. Takes things into his own hands. Right? He's going to fix this. Or we move on to King David. Consider King David. Commits adultery with Bathsheba, realizes what he's done, and what's his immediate impulse? To cover it up, right? I've got to cover my sin up. And so that leads to what? Lying, deception, murder. David makes an absolute mess of his life, right? Trying to fix this problem. The story of self-salvation covers the scriptures all the way to our lives today. We're committed to saving ourselves, We're committed to saving ourselves from sin and its devastating effects, from anxiety, from worry, from suffering, from pain. We're committed to it. Here's the problem. We're committed to something we can't accomplish. We are committed to something that we cannot accomplish. No one is worthy to open the scroll. The one plan of salvation that actually works We can't accomplish it. We can't save ourselves. Self-salvation projects fall under two main categories in our world, and and everyone in the world falls underneath one of these self-salvation categories. The first one is a self-salvation project of works, and that says this, that if I'm good enough, things are gonna turn for the good in my life. If I'm good enough, God's gonna bless me. God's gonna make things comfortable in my life. God's gonna get rid of this problem if I'm just good enough, if I just measure up. In fact, we're in the season. This is where Santa Claus is coming to town comes from, right? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty or nice. What, what is that? What is that pushing? Be good. And if you're good, life's gonna be good, right? That's, the, that's self-salvation project number one or category number one. The second one is self-salvation project of acceptance. And that says this, God is love. And he's gonna love you no matter what, no matter what you do. So you, you make up your own rules. You, you do what you want. You do what makes you feel good. And God's just gonna be sitting there patting you on the back saying, you're doing good. Self-salvation project of acceptance. Now here's the problem. Both of these fail. They both fail miserably. And that's what brings us to the tears. In verse four, when John writes, John began to, to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it, right? These are tears of despair from the apostle John. He was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. These are tears of despair because he realizes that if this scroll is not open, that God's curse on sinful humanity will last forever and that suffering will last forever. And understand his context. I said it last week. John is in prison on an island, isolated for the remainder of his life. He's in a prison cell. Not only that, but his 11 friends, his 11 apostles have all died. And not just died, they've been martyred, burned at the stake, crucified. John was the last living apostle. 
And not only that, but he just finished in the first part of Revelation writing the seven churches who are going through significant suffering and persecution. And John realizes if nobody can open this scroll, this is gonna go on forever. All this pain, all this suffering, it's gonna go on forever. And so he weeps loudly at the prospect of that. He weeps loudly. Tears come when self-salvation projects don't work. Listen, your self-salvation project of works comes crashing to a halt when you work really hard to be good and to do the right thing. And God doesn't, he doesn't bless you with a comfortable life. In fact, you do all the right things. And some of you have experienced this. You've done all the right things. And your life gets harder and more troubled. And what happens? You turn, you get angry at God, you get bitter. Despair sets in. Why? Because the self-salvation project of works didn't work. Or if you abide more by a self-salvation project of acceptance. You know, the first one that I just said, that's the older brother in the prodigal son story. Father, I've worked all these years and you didn't give me anything, right? That's the self-salvation project of works coming to failure. Of acceptance, it's, hey, so you go and you, you live your life and you, you do what you want and you do what makes you feel good and, and, and at the end of the day, you're still empty. You get the house, you get the car, you get the spouse, you get the children, you get the job, you get the big paycheck and you do what you want, you get the big vacations and at the end of the day, you sit in your room and you go, is this it? It's empty. Right, that's the self-salvation project of acceptance failing. And eventually both of them fail. The point is this, that your weeping and groaning will continue as long as you try to save yourself. Let me say that again. That your weeping and groaning, your despair will continue as long as you try to save yourself. So that begs the question, then who is worthy to dry up your tears? Who is worthy to give you hope in the midst of your despair? Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. There it is. Get ready. You want your tears dried up? You want some hope in the midst of your despair? Here we go. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, John starts his description of, this is a description of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ. He starts this description of Jesus with two titles, Lion of the tribe of Judah and Root of David. Why? Well, it's two Old Testament prophecies. Genesis 49 says that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah 11 and other prophecies say that Jesus would come from the line of David. Why is this important? because Jesus Christ didn't just get plopped out of the sky on Christmas morning. He was born of a woman. He had a family tree. He had a family tree. In fact, the genealogies that tell his family tree in Matthew and Luke go all the way back not only to Abraham, but to Adam and Eve. In other words, the importance of this is it's an emphasis on Jesus' humanity, that for Jesus to save human beings, he had to become a human being fully human. That's why Hebrews chapter four says that we have a great high priest that can sympathize with your weaknesses, your brokenness. 
Because in every respect, he has been tempted as you have. Every respect, he has been tempted as you have. And yet without sin. That uniquely qualifies Jesus to dry up your tears. He can dry up your tears because he understands your tears. He wept the tomb of Lazarus. He wept. He cried. That means that when you turn to him with your anxiety, your fear, your suffering, your pain, whatever it may be, he does not laugh at you. He does not belittle you. He doesn't tell you just to get over it. He gets you. He understands you. Not only because he put on flesh. You know, we oftentimes think that Jesus understands you because he put on flesh and lived for three years on the earth. Well, three years of public ministry, 33 years of life. You say, well, he remembers what it was like. No, 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 no. He doesn't remember what it was like. Sure he does. Do you know that he still is in human flesh right now in the throne room? He engages with your humanity now. Not because he remembers what it was like. And he will engage with your humanity and your human condition forever. Even after he comes back, we will live forever in bodies. Jesus will have a body. That's, that is engagement. He engages with your humanity. And that's why he is uniquely worthy to dry up your tears because he's fully human. Second, he dries up your tears because he has conquered. Look at verse six. Now, verse five is where it says he has conquered past tense. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What's the evidence that Jesus has conquered, past tense. Well, it's this phrase that appears three times in this chapter, the lamb who was slain. Lamb imagery. What is that? Well, it, it brings us back to God's people in the Old Testament that celebrated the Passover feast once a year. And when they did that, they would sacrifice a lamb. And the way it was sacrificed gives some context to why it's the lamb who was slain. Because the priest would take the lamb and he, he put his hands on the head of the lamb, symbolizing the transfer of sin from God's people who the priest represented to the lamb. And then the throat of the lamb would get slit and the blood would flow in front of the priest, in front of all the sea, signifying that the sins of the people had been symbolically put on this lamb on a substitute. And of course, the New Testament and to hear in Revelation 5, speaks of Jesus Christ as the lamb, that Jesus Christ is the one who was slain for your sin. He was slain, the blood flowed on the cross for your sin. Now, while the imagery here is of Jesus as lamb, and that, that brings us back to the cross, the cross is not where John wants you to focus what he writes here, the lamb who was slain, he doesn't want you focused on the cross. There's something else going on here. And there's two reasons for that. First, the verb slain, which appears, as I said, three times, it appears in different verb tenses. Let me explain. This is really important. 
first in verse nine, where it says, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. The word slain there is in a verb tense that means a completed past event. That in verse nine, the focus is yes, this historic past completed event where Jesus died on the cross. Now slain in verse six and in verse 12 is in a different verb tense. It's a verb tense that describes the present state of affairs resulting from a past action. So in verses six and 12, the focus here is the present state of affairs that result from Jesus' death on the cross, but the present state of affairs, which is the one who has conquered. He's not bleeding anymore. He bled once. And now he's standing in the throne room, having conquered, having been victorious. Number two, second reason why John is, he's not, he's not pushing our focus to the cross. He's pushing our focus, right, to the one who's standing in the throne. Second reason is this. Look at the description in verse six. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, John is not looking at a, a lamb. He's looking at Jesus Christ. He's using imagery. As though he'd been slain, meaning you could, he could still see the scars on Jesus. This is what Thomas saw right after Jesus rose from the dead and Thomas said, I could see the marks on his hands and the mark in his side. That these, these scars on Jesus, though, were not a sign or a reminder of defeat. The scars were a reminder and a sign of victory that he had conquered, that he's not bleeding anymore, that all the forces of hell and of evil and of sin were unleashed on Jesus, that all of sin was concentrated in that moment that he was on the cross. And Jesus absorbed it, put it to death, and conquered it. And now he's standing in the throne room with the scars to prove it, victorious. Game one of the 1988 World Series. Some of you weren't even born at that point. So let me let you know what happened. World Series, Los Angeles Dodgers against the Oakland A's. Dodgers are big underdogs. Kurt Gibson, who played for the Dodgers, had been injured. Both of his legs had been injured in the previous series. He wasn't expected to play at all in the World Series. Game one, bottom of the ninth inning, Dodgers down by one, two outs, tie and run on first base. Kurt Gibson gets inserted as a pinch hitter. He steps up to the plate. He hits a home run and wins the game for the Dodgers. He had no other plate appearances in the entire World Series. They win game one. They went on to win the World Series as underdogs. But the most iconic moment is the picture of Kurt Gibson doing his home run trot. Some of you are smiling. You remember it. Running around the bases, limping heavily all the way around the bases. It took him forever to get to home plate. Now, after the game, if you would have been standing outside the stadium and you would have seen Kurt Gibson walk out, dragging his leg and limping, you know what you would have done? You would have rejoiced. His limp wouldn't have been a sign of defeat. His limp wouldn't have been a sign of, of having lost. His limp would have been a sign of victory. 
And so it is with Jesus standing in the throne room with scars on his body. It's not a sign of defeat. It's a sign of victory. It's a sign that he has conquered, that he has defeated death. He's defeated sin. That's why he can dry up your tears and give you hope in the midst of your despair. His scars were visible on the throne. You know, my wife showed me an image from social media a couple weeks ago. Two pictures. Two pictures with a caption. One picture was of a man complaining about something trivial in his life. The other picture was a picture of Jesus Christ's head at the crucifixion time with a crown of thorns around his head and blood just streamed down his face. And the caption said something like this. Why are you complaining about your day? And I saw that. And do you know what made me mad? It made me mad. And I couldn't put my finger on it until I was preparing and reading Revelation 5. And here's why. The motivation for you overcoming your sinful complaining, which we are all guilty of dating back to the Israelites. We are grumblers. We complain. That's what we do sinfully. It's never enough. The motivation for you to overcome your sinful complaining is not some manipulative, guilt-ridden picture of Jesus Christ and how far worse his circumstances were. No, the motivation for you overcoming your sinful complaining is Jesus Christ in the throne room, standing with scars to show you that he was victorious and is victorious over your sinful complaining. And he's conquered whatever idol or whatever false God has you complaining that's failed you. You see the difference? You see why it made me mad now? Jesus isn't bleeding anymore. He's in the throne room. And he's got scars to prove his victory and his conquering of sin. That's the motivation that causes you to repent and turn from your sin and turn from these things, these little idols and false gods. It's not the picture of a man bleeding with a crown on his head. Yes, Jesus did that, but he is on his throne now. And that is what causes you to repent. <laughs> That's what causes you to repent and to turn. He's conquered your sin. So the one who is fully human dries up your tears. The one who has conquered dries up your tears. And finally, the one who is worshiped dries up your tears. Verses 11 to 14 paint this amazing picture of worship. I mean, it's just, it's awe-inspiring. You've got thousands and thousands of angels, living creatures, elders. They're all saying with a loud voice, look at verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. You know, there's, there's seven attributes there that are given to Jesus. Seven is the number of completion, fulfillment. That's all there to say Jesus is, is worthy of everything. He's worthy of all of our worship. This would have been similar to a picture in the first century of a king who would have gone off to battle and when that king went off the battle and won a victory and was coming back to his city or his country, when he would come back, the people of the city would come line the streets 
And they would start shouting and roaring as this king came back in and they'd follow him all the way into town, into the town square, and they would dance and they would sing and they would rejoice. Why? Because the king was victorious. And by their shouting and by their singing, they were participating in the victory. They were reaping the benefits of the victory. And that's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 5. That worship to the only one who is worthy, Jesus Christ, right, is a singing and it's a shouting, participating in Christ's victory, the king who has conquered death, has conquered sin, has conquered brokenness, has opened the, the scroll, the only one who is capable of executing God's perfect plan for history and bring all things to consummation. Who's the only one worthy to dry up your tears? It's Jesus Christ, the one who's fully human, the one who has conquered, and the one who has worshiped. Now, what's the result of this? And when Jesus dries up your tears, and again, I want you to hear that not as, uh, it doesn't mean that we never cry again. What it means is that when he gives you hope, when you bottom out in despair, that when he does that, you move from tears to victory. And what's that mean? Number one, you sing a new song. <laughs> you sing a new song. Your dirge turns into a joyful song, right? Verse nine, and they sing a new song. Now, let me again give you context here and what this means. They sang a new song. This included John. Did John get out of prison? No. Did the 11 apostles who got martyred and burned at the stake and crucified somehow come back? No. Did the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation that John talks about that were suffering a tremendous persecution and suffering, did they suddenly, did all that go away and they had a comfortable life? No. Not one circumstance changed. They sang a new song because their eyes were fixed on the one who was worthy. Number two, you reign with Christ on earth. Look at verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is, this is remarkable. From the beginning of this chapter, there's unworthiness. No one's worthy to open the scroll. The emphasis is on our sinfulness. And by the end of this chapter, with Jesus on the throne, with the scars to prove his victory, we go from unworthiness to kings and queens. Reigning with Jesus on earth, what's that mean? It's simply just a, a restoration of what was happening in the garden. Our first parents that, that, that were called to develop, to cultivate God's world to his glory. And now we see here because of Christ's work and his victory, the same thing, we're called to reign on earth, to be his representatives, to cultivate this world to God's glory, to cultivate people to his glory. How do you do this? The key here is reigning with Christ, not just reigning. We have plenty of reigning in our world. We have plenty of abuse of power in our world. Reigning with Christ. How do you do that? Look at verse eight. The 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding 
a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Understand what that's saying. The prayers of the saints, those that are in Christ on earth, the prayers of everyone on earth that are in Christ are gathered in the throne room before God. What we learn here is that we reign with Christ through prayer. Prayer is the difference between reigning and reigning with Christ. Prayer is the difference between reigning independently and reigning dependently in Christ. Let me close by taking you back to the story I opened with. So Kim and I get in the car, we're weeping, just absolutely broken and in despair. What dried up our tears, and, and we physically continued to shed tears, but what, what gave us hope in the midst of that despair? It was this. It was Jesus Christ on his throne with scars to prove his victory and his conquering. And that is the only thing that dried up our tears. It wasn't getting on the internet and Googling and, 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 and trying to find some degree of hope that maybe 10 to 15% really means 50 and, or 50 means 75 or uh, none of that dealt with our despair. The only thing and the only one who dried up our tears was the one in the throne room with scars to prove his victory and his conquering, to open up the scroll, to perfectly accomplish God's plan for all of history, which included our lives and our story. That's the only one who was worthy to dry up our tears, the one who wasn't bound by worldly percentages, who was worthy to be worshiped. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious, glorious picture of the throne room of heaven. And we understand that even gathered here as we pray, that what we're reading about is happening right now in an unseen realm that we can't get our physical eyes on. That Jesus, you're on the throne and that you've got scars on your body and they're not scars that are reminders of defeat. They're scars that are reminders of victory that you have conquered. The scroll has been opened and you are perfectly accomplishing your plan for history, for your church. And it is good. And it includes our lives and our stories. Father, there are many here this morning that are dealing with some degree of despair. And Father, there are so many temptations to try to find hope in the midst of despair. I pray for all of us, by your Holy Spirit, that you would draw our eyes to you, Jesus, on the throne in brilliant glory, having conquered past tense, and that just the vision of you is enough, not circumstantial change. Father, as we close in worship and as we enjoy this meal that is a sign of your victory and a promise of your victory that we will one day experience in full, oh, would you bring joy to our hearts. 
Would you bring joy to weary hearts as we continue to worship you? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.